House, Bob Geldof, Gregoire, Dan Beeston. Old enough to know better. <laughs> to episode L of Smart Enough to Know Better, a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. You old Roman, you. Uh, I, 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 V. Uh, no, wait. What? I, 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 V. What? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know, V, I, 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 I is eight, but anyway. So L, yeah. of course, is the 50th. The 50th is number 50, anyway, in the old, exciting Roman way of writing numbers. It'd be hard to do negatives. It, it always, you I just got to go I, 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 B, and then work it out from there. It's a mess. <laughs> I don't think they had negative. I don't think they had zero They either. didn't have zero. No, zero. That's, that was a late, like, looks like an egg. That's why the zero looks like an egg. That's a story for another time. I'm very excited that our 50th episode, we've done a lot more than 50 episodes, but... Our, technically our episode number 50. Number 50, though it's probably... Point zero. Point zero, because we did the point... Anyway was opened by none other than a knight. A knight? A knight! With the shield and the... A knight and to the, remember at that! The, the, the sword and the Your, dragon that's slaying. Right. That's right. And it was, of course, did anyone know it? Anyone say it with me? It was Sir Bob Geldof. I can't believe that guy got knighted. He's a boo... I, what I can't believe is he accepted it. I can't believe... He's an Irish guy. I can't really work out why... Mm. I hope a big can of worms there. But it's like, whoops. Uh, yeah, anyway, there you go. So, yeah, it, it caught some boom count rats. The silicon chip inside her head was flicked to overload. Now, uh, now no one's going to go to school today. She's going to make them stay at home. Can we become Daddy doesn't knights? understand it. Said she was good as gold. Stop it. But you see no reason. We're, we're paying. We have to pay uh, for uh, every I didn't it. that you. <laughs> can we become knights? I do not believe we can yeah, anymore. In Australia, as, as Australians, we cannot become knights. We are part of the Commonwealth, but we can no longer get OBEs. We have to get Orders of Australia. I do not believe Australians can become sir. Uh, Sorry about that. No no knighthoods for us. I said become a teacher. Well, then, then you. Me, sir. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But uh, an actual real sir. 50! 50, huh? L. L. Yeah. 50. This is just not really that... Oh, is it exciting? It's, oh, yes, it's exciting. You will, you will make it exciting. <laughs> I was about to say... 50, was, it starts with a 5. And once again, any even number is quite... Any whole number, even number with a... Oh, any but, whole number. Well, is, well, you, well, you know what I mean. Sorry, but uh, boy, uh, those those decimals. <laughs> we should, wow, well, you should, exciting. Thank goodness we didn't do the point five. Anyway, 50 is the smallest number that is the sum of two non-zero square numbers. In two distinct ways. So, of course, it is one squared plus seven squared. That's 50. Yep. And the other one is? Oh, I reckon that that yeah, is yeah, yeah. four squared plus six squared. No, no. You're, 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 no, no. Five squared plus five squared. Five, oh. 25 plus 25. Wait, so 16 what did I say? 16, 16 plus, plus 36, 36 is... Doesn't quite make it. No, that's not. Anywhere near. That doesn't yeah. even in zero. No, you're crazy. But that's right. So there you go. So it's one squared plus seven squared and five squared plus five squared. <gasps> Very exciting. You know what else is exciting? Alone. Let's stand and loiter at the scene of the accident. Oh, yes, yes. Because uh-huh. Sir Bob Geldof is not the only knight that I have come in contact with this last week. Really? Yes. Ooh. 
Who else have you come in contact with? I caught up with the grand old master, Sir David Attenborough. Did you really? I did. You honestly went, you, you caught up with him? Well, no, I didn't get to, I didn't get within like 400 metres of him, but I watched him from <laughs> that's, afar. That's because of the restraining order, Dan. You know but how that works. I, I, in what, hang on, please explain why you were anywhere on the same continent as Sir, Sir David Attenborough. Sir David Attenborough came to Brisbane to do a, a talk and the Frog Princess and I went along and paid 85 bucks each and went and watched him talk about his life as a awesome. nature documentary guy. Now, I've got to say that uh, big kudos to, A, anyone who gets someone famous to record for uh, the beginning of our podcast. Oh, yes. B, Scott Driscoll, because it's mostly him. <laughs> C, Girl Clumsy, who got us... Uh, Sir Bob Geldof. Sir Bob Geldof. That's true. So if you are listening and you want to help the podcast, just get anyone famous, mainly science-based, be awesome, to say Gregoire and Dan Beeson are smart enough to know better. Uh-huh. But I didn't even know where to start. I really wanted... Because oh. like, David Attenborough, oh, that goodness. would have just blown oh, everyone else goodness. out of the water. Yes. Uh, nothing. You can't. I, I, don't, I didn't no. know where to start. You'd be starstruck. And, and at the entertainment centre. At the entertainment centre. It's like, yeah, Boondle yeah. Entertainment Centre. It's just this gigantic labyrinth. Of, like, yeah. we've been backstage there. Oh, we have. And been. we got to talk to the dinosaur puppets. We certainly did. But in that place, there's no. I, I, you don't just stand outside the no, side door. And, he, the, the, and he's a very fam- famous man. He doesn't want to talk to you. That's no. Fine. But that's okay. Oh, but I tell you what, you know who the. I, I was like. Oh, it was beautiful. It was a little commentary thing. He's his own voice, mm-hmm. like announcing himself type thing. <laughs> and, and, and like... Here we see an old man who's very <laughs> famous coming on stage. Oh, that would have been nice. <laughs> but there were, like, there were thousands of people sitting there already and looking forward to it. Yep. And the big booming voice that everyone recognises and these gigantic curtains open. Put your hands together, you bastards. And there's it's a... Sir David. And there's a tiny little man looking reserved and dignified is, standing yeah. in the middle of this gigantic oh. stage. And everyone just went nuts. Uh, you just want to hug him. You want to go, yo, yo. What's weird is I, I can't really remember a time when I, I grew up with the man. Yeah. And he hasn't changed that much. He was always in white haired and khakis wandering the world. Well, he hasn't changed poking, his clothes. Po- poking at whales. But he doesn't he take the same yeah, clothes. He wears, he wears beige pants yes. and a blue shirt so that it's consistent throughout every documentary that he does. <laughs> because it jumps all over the place. And if his shirt kept switching color, you'd get all... Yeah, you're confused. confused. Yeah, that's true. I grew up with the man. Yeah. I grew up with him in my life. I've always known about him. And I, I, and now that I've become a science teacher, I've used him in my classrooms for little bits of his documentary. Yeah. To, and to, and, and it, what freaks me out, I don't want to make a bummer on this, but one day he won't be here. It's the way of the world. The quote Doctor Who, everything has its time, everything dies. Yeah, well, and you know I what? I don't know what we'll do without David Attenborough. I mean, Brian Cox Brian is Cox cool. Is being kind of, but he's kind of sexy and like you know, like hip swaying and dung, 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 so dung, was dung, David dung. Attenborough. Was he? But well, was when he, he was young, when he was, oh, was he? Yeah. I didn't know. I wasn't part of that. So nah, yeah. he was a, he was gangly. He looked like me. <laughs> uh, like half the room is standing up already to applaud him and stuff. It's like David Attenborough, and I'm like, oh my god! Like I've been watching him since I was five years old. He inspired mm. a keenness in science in me. Only comparable to my father, who was a paleobotanist. Mm. I was just like, oh, this is amazing. And then, and then, Uh the next slide came up on the screen saying, please welcome your host, Ray Martin. And my stomach dropped. (laughs) I was like, oh, fuck. Fucking, fucking cockballs. Ray 
fucking Martin. Now, for the, our American listeners and our international listeners, Ray Martin was kind of like a daytime talk show host. Yeah, he's like a bobble-headed current well, he affairs was, Yeah, he was a current, yeah, current affairs guy. Yeah, he's, I didn't realise he was still alive. That was kind of interesting. So, oh, obviously so. God, well, not if I had my way. Oh, pff, don't be Allegedly. Like I'm sure. You, did, you weren't there. Uh-huh. He did a balls job of it. I, well, he was terrible. He had no enthusiasm about science. Yep. He was just name dropping all the way through, uh, making it all about him. Did not trust his guest uh-huh. to tell stories and be entertaining. Uh-huh. And then at the end, he goes, oh, well, uh, you know, please thank him a lot because, you know, he's probably not going to come back. What the fuck? Really? You can see him going... Oh, well, I can't actually. I can't say why he's not going to come back because he's probably yeah, going to yeah, yeah. die soon. Uh, <laughs> because I think we've worn him out. The guy has. This is his job. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. been doing this job for thirty years. He's still retarded at it. Oh, oh sorry, no, uh, sorry I, I Ray see, Martin. Ray Martin, right? Yes, that's his job to interview people and to okay. make them look good. So what you're saying here completely is completely drop the ball. So David, wonderful. Ray Martin, not so good. Yeah. You know who is good at making interviewees feel comfortable and allowing them a space to tell interesting stories? I don't. Us! Which is good, because we have a fantastic... You're not backing me up there at all. I am suddenly realising the hypocrisy (laughs) of bagging out and swearing at Ray Martin for being a terrible interviewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am feeling ashamed... And tiny. We have we have a fantastic You hate interview. in others what you hate in yourself. <laughs> we have a fantastic interview for you. I'm very excited to pass this one on to you. So I want to welcome to the podcast Mr. Rob Hollow. He is the Education and Outreach Officer for the CSIRO Astronomy. I think it's right, yes. And uh, say hello, Rob. Hi, how are you? <laughs> good, thanks, good, thanks. I too am well. <laughs> oh, well, there's Dan. That's Here right. I am in the corner. We don't want to forget Dan. Now, Rob, you have, I believe anyway, the best job in the world. I would, I would break many laws, many laws, civil laws, not criminal laws, to, to get your job. Can you please tell... It's like the, bikini inspector or something? Sh- sh- can you please tell people, Rob, what, what you actually do? So my job's one of these... Multifaceted ones, I get to do all sorts of fun things. So my job is to help take the science that our amazing scientists do and the great astronomy that's done in Australia and around the world and work with students, teachers and the public to increase their understanding of astronomy and science in general. That's, that's, that's a lot of fun. It's a lot of, now, that's not book learning or anything like that. Is that you're talking about real hands-on science. It's a whole variety of stuff. So I, for instance, do a lot of teacher training. So I work with teachers around Australia, run workshops, a lot of hands-on activities. I do a fantastic three-day workshop at Parks each year that I was delighted to have you along this year, Greg. Oh. <laughs> Very true. That's how I found out about Rob. It was one of those weird situations. I was looking on the internet, looking for some professional development, and I thought, oh, this sounds good. Astronomy from the ground up sounds great. And I asked my boss if I could go, and they said, oh, Rob Hollow, he works for the same company we work for. So I was like, oh, well, <laughs> whoops. Yeah. It was just one of those weird things I, I didn't even know. Just for full, yeah. just, so that the audience may not know, and just for full yeah. disclosure, I actually work for the CSIRO as well. So that's just so where people know where I met Rob. I, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just putting it out there. 
<laughs> so You're like defensive. No, not defensive. Um, I work for the CSIRO. We didn't steal the Wi-Fi. No, no. We didn't. We, well, we didn't. Thank you very much. It was a court Thank case, you. and we didn't. Thank you, Dan. Anyway. Anger up, flare in his oh. eyes. Anyway, yeah, so, so you actually go out and you do all these great things like astronomy from the ground up, where I got to stand on the park's telescope dish. You did How? indeed. We, you, you got a hayride on the dish, which hayride. is always a highlight. Oh, I know. It's, it's, and, it's amazing. Uh, so another program I run, Head Up, is a, is a great one for high school kids called Pulse at Parks. Um, indeed, we had a session two days ago, and in that we have two hours a month of telescope time where we have high school kids taking direct control of the Parks Radio Telescope over the internet. That's brilliant. They get to meet some of our astronomers and our PhD students. They get to control the dish, observe these amazing, bizarre objects in space called pulsars, and then analyse their data. So that's a fantastic program. And we, one Is that, that safe? Done... Is it... <laughs> like, if giving high school kids full control of something that size... Because, quite frankly, when I was 15, if you gave me control of something that size that moved around, I'd be trying to swat birds out of the sky with it. <laughs> like a 40-foot dish, poof. The Parkes Radio Telescope is designed to even be astronomer-proof. So <laughs> uh, um, when, when it comes to, to kids, yeah, we, they haven't broken it yet. They're, they're, they're really good. We have a fantastic time. Um, it's a great program. So we normally run the sessions here in Sydney. And, in fact, the session we did on Wednesday was the first one where we've used our new science operations centre here at Marsfield. So they were sitting in the exact control room now that oh. astronomers use to observe at parks. That's cool. But we've also done it in other places in Australia and indeed overseas. We've done it several times in other countries with foreign students. That's brilliant. Now, when you say they're controlling it, you don't mean virtually, do you? You mean, you mean that they actually are in control, of the, control of the telescope? Yep. That's they're using brilliant. the exact interface that the professional astronomers use. They are logged in as the astronomer, so they have the control of the telescope. That's right? brilliant. It's not that they say, oh, we'd like to move this, so we email somebody at Parks and say, can you move it here? No, they're driving the telescope. That's great. So any data they download, if they could they find something new and exciting and, and sort of be part of the discovery process? With the Pulsar Parks program, we're not looking for new pulsars. What we're doing in this specific program is studying some known pulsars, but we're getting more data on them. Mm. So the data that they get certainly helps us with some other scientific programs. They can use the data that they've got to measure the distance to the pulsar, but some of the pulsars in that target group do some really interesting behaviour, and sometimes when we're observing the pulsars, for instance, they seem to turn on and off, right. and that's really exciting. Isn't that so what a pulsar is supposed to do? Am I uh, a, behind the uh, eight ball here? <laughs> well, no, most pulsars don't turn on and off, but some of them have been found to turn on and off, so they're called nulling pulsars. So sometimes you look Ooh. at them and there doesn't seem to be anything there. Other times you look at them and they're nice and bright, but occasionally we actually see catch them in the process of turning on or off and that's really exciting and we've had that happen a few times with whilst the students have actually been right. observing oh, so that's i must always be really exciting. yeah because isn't the pulse part of it what of a pulsar means that they do go like they spin brighter, around brighter, they... br brighter dimmer brighter dimmer brighter yeah. dimmer well remember it's not yeah, it's not so it's radio waves you could sort of picture them as a spinning top so a yeah. pulsar is a neutron star, so it's the densest form of matter you can get. So the way I like to think of it, a cubic centimetre of pulsar material, what we call neutron degenerate matter, which is one of those lovely oh. terms, <laughs> it, it's got a mass of a, of a, a billion tonnes. 
Wow. So that's more <laughs> than the mass of everybody on Earth in a cubic centimetre. In other words, a dice you could play Monopoly with. Okay? <laughs> so they are bizarre objects. Mm. And normally they're very precise clocks, really regular. They spin quite rapidly from about one to, in some cases, hundreds of times a second. Mm. But for some reason, some of these pulsars, they appear to turn on or off. So they just stop pulsing completely and they just... Not pulsing. The, the, the word pulsar is a bit of a misnomer because the stars themselves aren't pulsing, they're spinning. And what yeah. we see as a pulse is that you, you get two beams coming out either magnetic pole of these pulsars. And ah, yeah. imagine, imagine a car yeah. out of control on the, on, at night time on a highway spinning around and around. You just see the headlights go yeah. past you every so often. Yeah. I, I normally prefer the more moderate approach of a lighthouse going around. Oh, that's, you see a lighthouse around. going out of control down a freeway. That's <laughs> terrifying. That would be an interesting uh, – no, no, that's an interesting uh, mental image, yeah. <laughs> so, this, so we're stuck on pulsars here. Uh, so the, so pulsars, what's the theory yeah. of why they turn off? Do you, do you guys have an idea? Uh, now you see, this, is, this, is, this is where it gets really fun working with the uh, students, right? Mm. Because we go and give them a background talk beforehand and we talk through all this. And then they come here and they're doing and they're looking at all of these. And then sooner or later, one of them works up the guts to actually ask a question, which we really encourage them to do. <laughs> and they'll ask us that exact question. And you know what we tell them? Uh-oh. Yes. We don't know. Oh, that's so I, I, unsatisfying. And I love that. See, this is different between Dan and I. I love the fact we don't know. That's brilliant. That For some of the kids, you literally see their jaw drop. You said, what do you mean you don't know? And I said, well, that's why we're studying them. Mm. <laughs> now, what is interesting, of course, is we have several pulsar astronomers on our team, and some of them have different theories. And so mm. then they will get into a polite discussion in front of the students, sometimes <laughs> rather more animated discussion, each trying to suggest their theory. And so so it's a revelatory experience for these students because they're seeing science in action, people mm. trying to argue the case based on the data that they've got and the observations we're making. And, That's you know, at this stage, I, don't, I think it's fair to say that there are th many theories out there, but the, the jury's probably still out on it all. And from an educational viewpoint, frankly, I don't really care what causes it at this <laughs> stage. It's more the fact that kids are introduced to the fact that science isn't what we know, mm. it's what we don't know and how we're going to find out and see if we can figure out more to know. It's not done yet. That's, that's the thing I get excited about too. It's not done and you can say to students, and adults as well, you can say, it's not done, get involved because exactly. you, could, you could find something new. It's not like the, the cookbook science we do in sort of early high school or late primary school, which everyone's all sort of set up and all done. That's right. It's, it's fantastic. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'm very, very, very excited. So Pat's Pulse at Parks, what else do, what else do you sort of work with uh, sort of in this sort of area of, of outreach? Well, one of the things that's been really interesting over the last year is I'm doing more and more stuff with non-traditional audiences. So I got approached about this time last year by an artist and we had some discussions and it ended up that she came in as our artist in residence. Her name was Mika is Michaela Gleave. Hmm. And so she's an installation artist. And so she spent the summer here meeting our scientists, going on an observing trip to one of our observatories and things like that and sitting in on the lectures that we give to our undergraduate vacation scholarship students. Hmm. Then she went and she's had an exhibition that I think finished finish last weekend in Fremantle, an installation piece based on the concepts and the ideas that she got from here. And then she also curated Art Bar at the Museum of Contemporary Art down in Sydney in oh, March. Nice. So a few of us went down and we had various astronomy activities. I was doing some hands-on activities. We had some other things going on. We had some telescopes on the roof. So there's been all of that type of thing mm. happening, which is great. And I'm working next weekend alongside a symphony orchestra that are doing oh. a children's performance of Holst's Planet Suite. So we're doing some astronomy activities to sort of promote that. So there's, there's some really fun ideas. Years. And so 
as I say, I, I really enjoy doing those types of things and getting out to other audiences. Mm, mm. I love it when I love it when you get art and science connecting. It's, I think it's really really fun because once again, we're doing a lot of that. And the other thing I do is I've had a, a large focus in Western Australia, working in the Midwest and Murchison region. The Murchison region is where our brand new radio telescope, oh. the Australian Square Kilometre oh. Array Pathfinder. Oh. Ah, yes. I just got all tingles up my spine. <laughs> Very exciting. So it's so it's been a lot of fun. So we've been going out there for several years now and so part of that work with me is I go out to the remote community schools in the Murchison so and working with the uh, Aboriginal students there and also back with the schools in, in the city of Geraldton. So that's been fascinating because, so, you know, I, until I had this job I've never been in the outback and mm. Uh, mm. so it's fantastic <laughs> to get out there. It's just a whole different feel. Can I get you just to I'm sure we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but can you just give a, a, a potted review of, of what the Square Kilometre Array actually will be? So the Square Kilometre Array is a truly mega science project, big international collaboration. I think there's 11 nations signed up at the moment. And it will be the world's biggest, most sensitive, most powerful radio telescope. So it's Mm. truly a sort of radio telescope for the next 50 years. Mm. It's Spread across two continents. Well, the name itself, so the square kilometre, is a nod to the total amount of collecting area of the telescope. Mm. So if you were to build it as a big square, it would be one kilometre by one kilometre. Oh, wow. I imagined that there was one kilometre square laid out somewhere with, I don't know, 16 telescopes there. (laughs) You mean there's one square kilometre of dish surface scattered across the globe? Yeah, so the the second part of the name is the array. So rather than building one big one kilometre square antenna, Mm. which is not desirable or practical for many reasons. Mm. Um, One of the beauties we can do in radio astronomy, indeed, you know, a lot of our existing radio telescopes utilise this, you can have lots of smaller antennas all connected together, Mm. and hence an array. So the square kilometre array will be many thousands of antennas, each with receivers on them, (laughs) joined together to synthesise the effect of one large telescope that's scattered across a continent. Holy cow, uh, that's amazing. So it just turns the entire planet Earth into one big dish kind of thing. Uh, Well, in fact, to to some extent, we we, we do that already. We routinely link up our existing radio telescopes in Australia to form a larger telescope called the Large Baseline Array. And again, we can also link up our existing radio telescopes in Australia with radio telescopes in, say, Japan or in South Africa or in uh, the US. (laughs) And so we can synthesise a telescope that's equal in size to the maximum distance between any two of the dishes. It's got, it's got a great name. It's called VLBI, Very Long Baseline Interferometry. But now what we can do in Australia with the high-speed dedicated fibre connections between our telescopes, we mm. can do this effectively real-time, so we call it wow. EVLBI. So it's really increased the efficiency as That's to how amazing. well we could do this. So the, the next step would have to be putting radio telescopes into space and then just getting uh, ridiculous you know, like distances bigger than the Earth. Well, we've already done that. Oh, well, right. I'm a genius! <laughs> Behind the times, but I'm a genius. <laughs> There's a small radio telescope in space at the moment called Radio Astron. It's a Russian mission. We can link that in with ground-based radio telescopes to increase the baseline. And in fact, there's CSIRO built one of the receivers that is on that radio telescope in space. Excellent. Good to hear. It's uh, really nice. We've got a bit of our 
technology flying up there. That's brilliant. So, so joining all these things together, we just get more and more data. We start seeing further back into the universe and, and sort of further back in time and start seeing with a lot more precision, really. That's what it comes down to, isn't it? Like better and better optics if it was, yes, you know what I mean? <laughs> optics is not the right <laughs> word there, but you know what I'm trying to say there. I know what you mean. Yeah, no, I mean, we're, the technology is improving all the time. Hmm. So the amount of data we are collecting is just going up to a vast extent. Once ASCAP comes fully online, it's in its commissioning phase at the moment, as it comes online fully, the amount of data it's going to generate, it just sort of swamps what we get with current generation radio telescopes. And that's that's really interesting. Sometimes people say to me, you know, what's the point of this? You know, okay, so we learn about pulsars, we learn about the beginning of the universe, we learn about dark matter, whatever we're learning about. How does that help? And you go, well, to create a square kilometre array, we're going to solve engineering problems, like mechanical engineering problems, but then computer engineering problems as well. How do we store that data? How do we, how do we access it? Exactly. And then to be blunt, I think most people involved in astronomy are doing it because they love astronomy. But we know, <laughs> and previous experiences taught us, you've got these really bright people designing and building and using amazing new telescopes. We know that these push the technological boundaries, and so there will be spin-offs. Now, we don't mm. necessarily know from the outset what those spin-offs will be. But, for instance, with ASCAP, one of the things that's really exciting about ASCAP is the radio receiver that's used at the top of the telescope. Mm. Um, so traditional radio telescopes have what we call a single feed. Very, very crudely, you could imagine it's a bit like a one-pixel camera, mm. right? So it takes <laughs> a very crude analogy, but you get the idea. With, with ASCAP, we're using a new approach called a phased array feed. So instead of having something like a one-pixel camera or one feed, we've got the equivalent of 188 feeds up there at once which allows us to, in effect, make a radio camera and see, say, a 30-square-degree chunk of the sky at a time. Mm. So that, mm -hmm. for instance, is about the size of the Southern Cross or Crux. Mm. So with ASCAP, we're going to be able to see that all at once. And so ASCAP's going to be able to survey the entire sky visible from that site. The phased array feeds are really exciting. Mm. They're new to radio astronomy. ASCAP is the first telescope designed from the ground up to actually have those phased array feeds. But, I mean, one of the key people involved in the phased array feed, one of our key team players there, was a guy called Dr John O'Sullivan. And, mm. of course, he is the person who headed up the team that developed Wi-Fi here at CSIRO many years ago. Take that, Dan. Again. <laughs> so, so when people ask me, you know, what's the point of radio astronomy? Well, yeah. personally, I, I don't, you know, I, I just justify it because it's, it's awesome. fills our thirst for knowledge. But <laughs> we know we're going to get some fantastic technology spin-offs out of it too. Especially if they've, yeah, they've texted you using their smart device from a remote location. What, is it, what uh, use is this to me? You go, well, actually, <laughs> yes. that's how you do it. So it's 188 different pixels for all intents and purposes. So that would be about a 16 by 16 grid? No, no, it's 188 elements. So I'm trying to remember the exact... No, it sort of <laughs> looks like a giant sort of chessboard, a check, checkerboard. Yeah. Oh, okay. So if you pointed that at the Southern Cross, then wouldn't yep, you get like a really pixely image of the... No, 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 because we've got... We haven't just got one telescope. One, yeah. ASCAP's got 30... Is going to... When it's complete, we'll have 36 antennas. Mm. Ah, when you've got something okay. like that on okay, the that uh, survey sense. telescope <laughs> for the phase direct... For SKA phase one, you mm. might have 100 antennas doing that. So the point is, you actually <laughs> get this really high-resolution image of a mm. decent patch of sky all at once. Wow. And that's something... We haven't been able to do easily in radio astronomy in the past, so it's going to it's opening up whole new ways mm. of doing radio. Astronomy, and that's why really we can exciting. only really look at two percent of the sky, as so far as checking out comets and possible planet killing. Um, not comets. Yeah, we're going to be able to see stuff. the whole sky. Yeah. 
yeah, that's a whole. Then you won't be able to the whole sky. That's going to be pretty cool. The whole sky, not in one go. No, but not in one hit. But we'll be able to mosaic it. We'll be able to do mm. this far more readily than existing surveys. Because mm. with say an existing telescope, if it sees a much smaller patch of the sky, it's going to take you much longer mm. to survey the entire sky. So something like ASCAP is designed to survey the whole sky repeatedly. Mm. So, you know, it's going to... If you really had to bust it and just go, we've got to map the entire sky with ASCAP. <laughs> Once it's built. Go! Yeah. How long is it going to take to uh, to do the whole sky? Uh, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Sorry, I'm not... A... Is, it, <laughs> is it like a couple of it's years? Going be, it's going to be... It's going to be dramatically faster than mm. traditional surveys. And the other thing is, because we've got 36 antennas, mm. the collecting area for ASCAP is pretty decent. So mm. that also means we're able to pick up fainter signals than a few, a few small antennas. So you're able to get what we call much deeper or see the fainter stuff out there. So not only are you looking at the whole sky, you're looking at it to greater depth or to greater sensitivity than previous surveys. Um, so we've got some surveys at the moment that we've surveyed small patches of the sky to very high sensitivity, mm. but you're only looking at a tiny patch. Or we can look at the whole sky, but you can't look very deep, right. uh, yeah. not very sensitive. ASCAP's going to be able to look at the whole sky and do and it deep. deeply. We're very good. Yeah. Now, I'm going to I'm going to rescue Rob from Dan, and because we didn't invite Rob on as an expert of <laughs> an expert in, in ASCAP. Yeah, we've we, gone on a tangent, haven't <laughs> we've we? We've gone slightly off there. We'll pull it back. We'll pull it back slightly into into what I want to talk about today, focusing on on this really great term, citizen science. I thought yep. as the first time I actually heard about that was at your at your talk, Rob, and I just it, it yeah. coalesced a lot into my head. Can you please explain what citizen science actually is and and how it's oh, useful? Well, I Okay, so citizen science is one of those wonderful things. It's a term that seems to encompass a variety of things depending on who you are. But citizen science is where you're using amateurs or non-professional scientists, i.e. the public, mm. to help either collect or analyse data. Mm. So I saw this a few years ago now, there was SETI at Home project. You could download uh, information from the from the search for extraterrestrial intelligence to and it used yep. your computer to, to see if there was any little green men. Yeah, so that was sort of one of these early ones where it wasn't using the person so much, it was using the person's computer <laughs> to, to do it. So that's sort of like a distributed computing mode and mm. that's very fine. It's got its place and everything. I think mm. to my mind citizen science goes beyond that because it's something that actively involves a non-professional mm. in making decisions or physically doing something. I thought I'd done something really cool with a SETI at home project. I personally thought I'd done a gangbuster job because mm. I installed it and then boom, suddenly aliens. But I'd accidentally installed Space uh, Invaders. So you didn't find any? They kept destroying my shields. <laughs> you got to shoot through your shields, Dan. Shoot through your shields. You're crazy. <laughs> what? They're my shields. No, no, no. Shoot through your shields. Coming yeah. back. So citizen science. So, look, so citizen science, there's now uh, an amazing diversity of citizens' science projects running around the world. But I guess the the way I really got into it was through a project, I guess the seminal projects in the history of citizen science, a thing called Galaxy Zoo. Mm. And Galaxy mm. Zoo came from a great concept. It started like a lot of really good science does, that is, in a pub. Okay? <laughs> so you've got, I think it was then a PhD student and a postdoctoral fellow at Oxford University in the UK. They had this problem. They were trying to classify galaxies. Mm. So if we, we look at images of galaxies out in space, we see that some look like lovely spirals. Others sort of look like big blobby elliptical things. Others are irregular. 
Okay, so that's you've had to break them down into three levels. Yep. That's crudely what you get. But of course, yeah, scientifically, you want to be a lot more nuanced than that. In the good old days, if you wanted to classify a galaxy, you'd take a Mark One Galaxy Classification Tool, otherwise known as a PhD student. You'd take a <laughs> set of galaxies, maybe say three thousand galaxies. You sort of put the two together in a room, lock the door. Three years later, open the door. <laughs> sort of poor PhD student collapse the waveform. Give them a doctorate, and you've got your galaxies <laughs> classified. And oh. that was that, that sort of works okay when you've got of the order of thousands of galaxies to mm. classify. Mm. But with the sort of telescopes we've got now, we don't just get thousands; we get hundreds of thousands or millions of these things, mm. and yes. we just don't have enough PhD students to be honest. We're wearing them out so, too fast. <laughs> well, that's right. So these guys had the idea. Well, look, maybe if we made a simple web interface, put some of this up on a website, maybe there's some members of the public out there that might be interested in trialling this. But, I mean, the, well, they wouldn't know what to do, surely. They, they would, they would, they're not trained for years and years to understand what a galaxy looks like. Madness! Exactly. exactly. But the other issue is people say, well, okay, if you've got you know, millions of galaxies, surely the obvious thing you need to do is just write a bit of software to do it. Well, mm. Yeah, okay, mm. computers, mm. Uh, you think, oh, great. But it turns out computers aren't particularly good at doing that. Uh, not only that, you're writing the software that's got to do it. You've got to know whether the software is going to give you the right result. Uh, right. So they thought, well, let's, let's put it out there. So the key thing is they developed a simple classification scheme that rather than sort of giving you this complex uh, diagram that you've got to follow through step by step, the beauty was the interface, and it basically shows you a galaxy. Mm. And then it just asks you a few simple questions. And then based on what you answer for the first one, it then goes to a, the next level and asks you another question. Like a choose-your-own-adventure. Questions, almost a bit like that. In the end, it ends up classifying the galaxy. Mm. And so they put this out there, and, and in fact, they, they were absolutely swamped with demand. <laughs> so they had to get the servers back up and get extra server demand, and, and it took <laughs> off from there. And so that was the first of the projects there. And since then, the group behind this have gone on and done other projects, initially in astronomy, mm. around an astronomy focus, but now, in fact, across a range of disciplines that I can talk about in a minute. And so they formed a collective called the Zooniverse. Mm. Their word is they've got this citizen science ecosystem online. And I've just checked on the Zooniverse website, which is www.zooniverse, that's all one word, .org. Mm. And as of today, they've got 855,314 people signed up for Zooniverse projects. That's pretty cool. I'll, I'll, I'm going to admit to something here, Rob. When you first told me about Zooniverse, I went and joined up. And I was like, how interesting could classifying galaxies be? And then yeah. I, suddenly I, I joined up, started doing galaxies. I suddenly realized three hours had passed. <laughs> I did three yeah. hours just sitting there going, I am doing unpaid work and loving it. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. a lot of fun. Was, it turns out that there are lots of people out there who just really, really enjoy doing this. And, of course, the beauty, the beauty of this is it hasn't remained static. The project's evolved, so the first set of data that was used, all of that's being classified now. So initially they used a telescope called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Now they're using data from the Hubble Space Telescope. But they've developed new projects using data from a whole range of instruments. And so as of today, they've got, what, seven astronomy projects up. They've got one called Galaxy Zoo, one called Moon Zoo that's using a thing called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that's a high-resolution telescope orbiting the moon and looking down on it. So you're mapping the lunar surface, looking at craters. That's cool. You've got another one called <laughs> Solar Stormwatch that's looking from the, the Stereo Space Mission. You've got two satellites orbiting the sun, and they're looking at these massive storms on the surface of the sun. Wow. 
the Kepler Space Telescope has been up looking at a tiny patch of the and, sky. And for, down, unfortunately. Oh, that's very sad. Yeah, it? yes. It's, uh, <sighs> it's a bit sick of there, But luckily there's still lots of data to go through. So that one's called Planet Hunters. So they're looking oh, for... So the telescope's down. It's not working. It's not pointed down no, looking no, at no. people. No, no, no. It's no, not like no, a share arrangement with, uh, no, with, yeah, with the, the NSA no. or something. <laughs> no. Yeah, they have four drive wheels. One had already failed, so mm. one of the remaining three drive wheels looks like failed so mm. it's probably likely that you know the mission's not going to be able to go on i mean i think they're i'm not up on all the latest they're, but they're looking they're, at it i think it's to be decided at the moment it all comes yeah, down to cash yeah. but luckily it's done a fantastic job and they found hundreds of new exoplanets that's planets beyond our solar system yes then we you know, some other really nice ones, Look, one called the Milky Way Project. It's looking how stars form within our galaxy. And that's a beautiful one where you literally go on and you use the web tools there and you draw circles on these sort of bubbles in the Milky Way. Oh, yes, so one, right. of the, one of the key people in that project is actually one of our postdoc fellows here at CSIRO. So citizen science seem, so far seems to be mostly about crowdsourcing for big projects. Is there anything that relates to individuals coming up with and implementing their own experiments? Nothing springs to mind as an individual doing their own experiment because I guess by its nature, citizen science is one where you're aiming to include lots of people either mm. in the data collection. So an example of that would be people going out and identifying birds or plants or wildlife in their area and uploading it to some database mm. or making observations of star brightness through a something like Globe at Night, so through to ones where you've got people actually making classification like Galaxy Zoo and some of the others. Mm. And the other thing that's, that's come up now, you've got things where people are transcribing old records. <laughs> so ah. there's lots of fun examples of this out there. Mm, okay. So digging through so, all the old uh, all the old tomes buried in a library somewhere and figuring out whether yeah, there's anything the, of value the problems, buried there. Yeah, this stuff 100 years ago, you know, people in those days could actually write neatly and, you know, beautiful <laughs> copper plate or things. But unfortunately, it's very hard to just uh, have that digitised and automatically converted into computer-readable form. So there are uh, several citizen science projects where you can go on and you transcribe data. So under the Zooniverse ones, for instance, they've got one called uh, Notes from Nature, where you're looking at old botanical field records in uh, various North American botanical collections. That's brilliant. Okay. And you've got another one which I, I think is lovely. It's uh, one called Old Weather. Again, it was a Zooniverse one that started off where they wanted to try and get a climate record from about 100 years ago. And it turns out one of the best records globally from 100 years ago was the Royal Navy. Oh, because they'd say, like, you know, nine bells and storms are coming or yeah, something exactly. like that. Exactly. And so yeah. every three hours, every Royal Navy ship around the globe had, had to record the weather Mermaids. in their ship's law. <laughs> so, yeah, they put this out there. And the, 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 the beauty is, too, it's not just give people a page of logbook that they've then got to type in, in you know, on their keyboard. <laughs> it's, you know, that, that's Ooh. frankly, you know, well, it wouldn't get me in. It wouldn't probably get a lot of people in. Mm. Um, but they made it, teams come up with these creative interfaces. So, in effect, there, what happened, you would you do the simple training, then you sign on to a ship. And so you head off on the ship, and every three hours you then transcribe, or, you know, you, you transcribe the the logs oh, for that right. ship and then when you get in... to a new port you can jump ship and get on a new ship and things like that <laughs> oh wow and so the, the net effect is that one's actually uh... finished i assume that one's finished because now they're not using the royal navy they're looking at data from the u.s navy and coast guard right. ships so from it's, a similar uh... it's gamification so it's fantastic but, mm. but people there you, you could also for instance comment on any 
notes that were in the log. So what they're also finding is you're sort of some poor sailor that's died of some disease or whatever. So by plotting these, they were also getting information about the, the spread of infectious diseases oh, right. and things like that around. And also so there's all this other data. And, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see, right. Yeah. So citizen science, just, just, to, just to clarify, just to really, really drill down into this, citizen science is getting average people, people who are not trained in any of these disciplines, to do real yep. and useful work in that, in so, that yeah. area. That's right. And again, there's levels of depth that people go into. So I, I, I would imagine that, you know, people like the Zooniverse publish their papers that don't just look at the science that they were trying to get out of it. They're also actively trying to investigate how people interact with all this stuff mm-hmm. and, you know, how, how people... Or, yeah. Yeah. And so they've got various little projects. They've got blog, uh, forums, blogs. They've got... Um, the forums are mostly moderated by the public uh, keen Zooniverse people. Mm. They're learning not just, how, you know, getting the key science question, like what's the specific galaxy evolution question you're trying to solve that mm. the astronomer's interested in, but also the, uh, the social aspects, how people engage with the science, what gets people interested, what keeps people engaged, yeah. how complex can you go, and so on. You need to team um, up so with they're... Nintendo and, and have a, like a Pokemon galaxy cross thing. It's like, <laughs> oh, I've got to catch all That's two billion. It's an interesting idea. It's an interesting <laughs> idea. I, I mean, there's, there's some other great ones. I mean, there's, they've got these nature ones. So you've got one where you can go and look at whale songs. So you can play whale songs and try and match them to the whale, oh. you know, because I've got all the recordings of whale songs. And the other one I really like is a thing called Snapshot Serengeti, where they've got these automated uh, little cameras, so motion-activated cameras spread out across the Serengeti in Africa. Mm. And then any time something triggers it, it takes a series of snapshots. <laughs> and so then you get, you've got to analyse these snapshots. And so you've got to figure out, you know, is that a zebra or a giraffe that or whatever. Like an angry warthog staring at a camera. Yeah, Chupacatra! <laughs> And, you know, it was a lot of fun. You get some amazing, you know, you see some interesting sides of zebras that you've never seen before, let me tell you. you know? <laughs> Is it a low camera? We're not going to go into that then. If it's too low, don't know. Oh, yeah. so, careful. So, Is that a stripe? So there's there's lots of different projects. I mean, I started off with the astronomy stuff, and I love the astronomy, but, of course, there's things mm. for other people. And, I mean, the zoo Normal people. Normal people. <laughs> It's one of the big ones. In fact, we're hosting the Galaxy Zoo Evolution Conference, the global conference, actually, in Sydney in September. So CSIRO is the main sponsor for that. But it's going to be held at the Powerhouse, and it's going to be really good. So, in fact, one of the founders of Galaxy Zoo and the heads of the Zooniverse people, Dr. Chris Lintop from Oxford Uni, is going to be giving a public talk on the Sunday afternoon. That's on the, the 22nd of September. And then on the Wednesday night, the 25th, we're, hot, we're running a free teacher evening at the Powerhouse where teachers can come in and learn all about how to use these Zooniverse projects with their classes. That's so brilliant. certainly uh, love to see as many teachers as possible come along for that. Definitely, definitely. There was a lady who was involved in Zooniverse, and she discovers, this is a citizen, who discovered yes. a totally new classification of yep. object. Yeah, so this was, I guess, this was this is one of those sort of stories that you couldn't script, right? So you you, you got um, something like Galaxy Zoo starting, and I think it's possibly fair to say when it starts, you know, a lot of scientists uh, might might be sceptical as to the value of doing this sort of thing. You know, yes. it might be a bit of outreach or something, but it, from a scientific perspective, is there any value? And it was fortuitous in that one of the things in the interface was it you go through and you'd classify your galaxies mm. and then it would say something like is there anything unusual or and you could click yes and you could also add a comment mm. and mm. so there was a Dutch school teacher her name was uh, Hanny van Arkel and she was doing this and she wasn't a physics teacher I mean she was doing this just for her interest she's found this this funny little blobby thing below the galaxy and so she mm. said look what's that 
you know, I, what's this thing? I haven't seen one before. Mm. And then the scientists were reviewing all the comments a few days later, and they come across this one, and, oh, um, I don't know. And they discussed it. Nobody knew what it was. Hanny's question, what is this, has since triggered observation time on many of the world's major telescopes, both ground-based and space-based, so things like Hubble. That's, so she and discovered something that no one had ever seen before. a new class of object, and indeed the objects are wow. now called Hanny's Vorvip. <laughs> Vorvip is Dutch for object. And so in effect, she had discovered something that turned out people had suggested could exist, but nobody ever took seriously, or few people suggested that you'd ever actually expect to find them. That's really the afterglow oh. of, of an active galactic nuclei that's turned off. And, and since then, we found more of these things, and so there's a whole science going on about this. It's been a fantastic story. Hanny is a real sort of public advocate for citizen science. Mm. She's been involved in the science papers. And she's given a lot of talks, a lot of media, and in fact, there's even, your uh, listeners can find this online mm. if they Google there's even a comic book now about Hanny's Vorby that uh, they did a comic book <laughs> so you about can... her and a and you could download it or you could buy a printed copy. Yeah, it's that's, fantastic. It is great. So you can, I mean, that's the thing. People go, oh, is this actually doing real science? You go, yes, it is. And, and you don't have to be trained. You can actually make a serious contribution. And it could yeah, be, be notable like, like Hanny's or it could be more quiet but still just as important. And the thing is they've got a project going on at the moment called Galaxy Zoo Quench where they've actually got a subset of the uh, Zooniverse people, people mm. that have been very active, it's a little mini project, and they're taking the people that sign up for that particular one through the entire process of science. So those people uh, are going to be involved. They've got the data there, working through classifying, being involved in the discussion, and being involved in writing the paper. Right. So this is a trial. So these, all these citizen science projects, they're evolving over time. They're trying new things, and it's really exciting. It I mean, there exciting. are. I, oh, I love it. Yeah, I, I've talked a lot about Galaxy Zoo as the, oh, and Zooniverse as the example, mm, mm. Um, but there are other, many other groups doing other really exciting exciting things, both in astronomy and in other areas. Rob, if people need to get involved in citizen science, where should they go? We, we know www.zooniverse.com. Where else could people start looking no, to get Zooniverse, involved? Zooniverse.org. Sorry, .org. .org. <laughs> or yep, just yep. Google Zooniverse, really, and you'll yeah, find it. Yep. There's other good ones. So there's a, another astronomy one called CosmoQuest.org that's got three different projects. <sighs> if there's other ones, there's the Great Atlas of Living Australia, which is a, a biological, zoological science area. So that's a really good one. And there's actually now some sort of overall sites where people can go and search. So if one I came across the other day that I've been looking through a bit is a thing called SciStarter. Mm. So that's, you know, um, SCIStarter.com. Like Kickstarter. It's a bit like Kickstarter, but SciStarter, mm -hmm. yeah. And that's where you can go and search for, say, the type of project you want, the location or anything like that, and it will throw some up there. So I went and typed in Australia into SciStarter, mm -hmm. and it's showing Reef Watch, Operation Spider, Climate Watch, Teach Wild, and Red Map. Now, the thing is, I hadn't necessarily heard about some of these before, but they all look fantastic. So, mm -hmm. And there's going to be more and more of this stuff coming out there. So you said for astronomy and for geology and for climate science and oh, for everything. If you're supervillains, supervillains could crowdsource like crazy. <laughs> that's true. Like, so whatever this giant spider 
web thing that he just mentioned. Find a spider? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that'd be very useful. Laser sharks. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Dan's being helpful again. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> he's always useful. Very helpful to have a guy around. So, yeah, so whatever you're interested in, in science, well, not even in science, whatever your interests are, you're probably going to find a way of, of marrying your interest with actually doing real-world science at the same time. Yeah. Yep. And if there isn't one there yet, uh, check back because chances are somebody's <laughs> working on it or got the idea and is just putting it together as we speak. As our, as our web connection becomes faster and faster, and faster. But what we what we seem to be discovering is that even though internet's getting faster and it should, you know, NBN and that sort of good stuff, really the human brain is the best pattern detecting tool that we've well, ever discovered. This, is, this goes back to galaxies. This was the issue they wanted to. Even if you've got these computer algorithms, you need the humans to verify. And so the beauty of galaxies, the the other great success was because you've got so many people involved, they start to figure out well what's the minimum number of people you need to classify a galaxy before you can be statistically confident, oh. you know, reliably confident that, that their classification is correct. And so all of that stuff has, has sort of arisen via... Oh, I see. You don't, you don't just give it to me, you give it to Dan, you give it to Rob, you give it to oh, like 10 other people, 100 other people, and in the end... certainly wouldn't just trust you to classify <laughs> And rightly oh. so. <laughs> and and, and it's probably not just you and, and, and Dan. I mean, I think, you know, we need to look beyond you two, you know. That's very, no, I understand. I, that's a very have, sensible we have idea. Very, we, we have very broad shoulders, but I don't think we can take on all of astronomy. We'll admit that at Smart Enough to Know Better. I'll, look, no, I'll give no, it a go. Limits, but I, I, I really appreciate <laughs> you, you, you helping out for that three hours. <laughs> that's all right. Look, Rob, thank you very much for, for coming on and telling us all about citizen science. I think it's really exciting. I love the idea that science is becoming less the other and the scary thing over there, and it's something we're bringing into our homes, bringing into our lives, and bringing onto our desktops. I think it's a really exciting place to, to go, and, and hopefully it'll continue on and, and become bigger and better and sexier. It's uh, certainly no lack of data there, and it's great to, you know, it's really nice to share the data and the process of discovery and exploration with the public because after all that's where a lot of the funding for science the bulk of the funding for science comes from is directly from the public so exactly right great for them to have the chance to get involved thank you rob hollow from the csiro for talking us today thanks very much Thank you to Rob Hollow from the CSIRO for that interview. Citizen Science, I just can't get enough of it. I think it's a the technology and the, the tapping into that fervor that's in the community. I'm really excited. I even logged on to the Savannah <gasps> Snapshot Did you really? today and had a bit of a play. That, did you enjoy and, it? At, well, yeah, it wasn't too bad, actually. I was like, grass, grass, grass. <laughs> Some sort of Ibex thing. Oh, and, 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 and you've got to figure it out. Oddly enough, I go, oh, I think it's this sort of creature. And it pops up a warning going, you know, this is often confused with the, these two other creatures. <laughs> Would you like to have a look at their ass? <laughs> I, I guess I'll have a look at their ass. And it's like, oh, well, they, their ass is their point of difference, isn't it? So what am I, what ass am I looking at there? So there you go. Citizen science it caters to all fetishes and, <laughs> and knowledge interest. Nice tale. <laughs> What's coming up? Very important to point this out in Australia anyway. From the 10th to the 18th of August this year and every year is the National Science Week. So National Science Week, right across Australia, it is National Science Week. And there will be tons and tons and tons of science-based stuff for you to get involved in right across the country in capital cities and non-capital cities. You can just go to www.scienceweek.net.au. 
We'll put the link in the show notes. And you can link into all the cool stuff that's happening all over Australia. Get involved in National Science Week. There are free things going on. There will be scientific organizations opening up so you can go have a tour. There will be free shows and there will be lectures and all sorts of really cool things from the 10th of August to the 18th of August somewhere in a city near you. Oh, that's exciting. It is actually really exciting. It's, people don't realize how much free cool stuff there is during Science Week, National Science Week. Oh, yeah. It's all and, over the place. And you should get involved. Once Bubbles, again, explosions. Oh, you better believe it. Stars. And you, and all, and all together sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> well, what? Okay. Yeah. I'm on board for that. I'm on board for that. Space Bubbles. So we will see you next time, dear listener. You can find us on Twitter at, at SE2KB. And you can also what find us on do- Facebook. What are you doing? Ending the you've, you've, cha- you've, you're mixing it up. You're mixing up the end. Am I? Yeah. Oh, do you, want to do it? you do it then. You obviously do it in a much better. End. No, well, I just every single time. Yes. We we kind of appropriate of nothing. We go. You have been listening to Dan at SmartEnough.org, and you've also been listening to Greg. But I thought I'd try something new. Yeah, well, we could do that. All right, okay. We'll just we'll, we'll, okay. Um, so, uh, so grass—that's biology. You've been listening to Greg at smartenough.org, and you've been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at se2kb. You can also follow us on Facebook. Look for Smart Enough or something. Se2kb. I can't remember. I don't on Facebook. <laughs> Go to iTunes and give us a review. Yes. Just click on the stars. We've reached five stars again. We've reached enough five stars to get rid of that three-star review. Excellent. It's still there. That's, well, so that's just noise. That's, it. yes, that's, that's, that's an aberration. It was a blip. It was a blip. Ah, so lots of five stars. We are powering through what's hot in the science area. We'd love a few more reviews. Just a, I like it. It's good. That's what it's right. Five stars, a little review. Takes two minutes of your time on iTunes. Be very, very useful to us. Please give it a go. Also, spread it by word of mouth. If you like what we do, tell someone about us. Because if you like them and they like you and you like, like us, us, therefore they like us. We're missing the last side of the triangle. Yeah, and that's so you- join us up for the science yeah. threesome. That's it. And we'll be with two of us. Technically, we'll be a foursome. Uh, it would, yes. But that's okay. Dan and I work together. But get involved and be, help us out. Double Just, team. Du- Double tagging you guys. Stop. No, no, no. This, this, no. The, the, the no. finger cuffs of, no. of, no. of science, no, comedy, Dan, and ignorance. No. no. Uh, it's our 50th episode. If you want to reward us and you have not yet already rewarded us for our year four, which was a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> it was. the survey is still <gasps> got to be filled out. We need a if survey. You haven't filled it out. And why and would we want. The, well, what, uh, hang on. <clears throat> Dan, I'm an audience member. Why would I fill out a survey for you? Do you like excellent prizes? I do. Too bad. Oh. Because on, you'll only get the self-satisfaction <laughs> of helping guide the podcast in the future. That's a good point. That's the thing. If you like something, we want to hear about it. If you don't like something, we want to hear about it. Because a lot of time we hear later on, they go, we don't like this thing. Well, you should have told us in the bloody survey. Nah. I said bloody. That's, how, that's what I, I... You know I mean something when I say bloody. Go on. Just oh. get it in the survey. Break our hearts. <laughs> we need to know. So, yes, please get onto the survey. Anything you'd like us to talk about, please get onto us on Twitter mm. or on uh, email us at greg at smartenough.org or dan at smartenough.org. We've now said that three times well, that, each. That's fine. That's good. I thought people like to do this it. Is a sh- this, is a, this is a shonky, flaky end. It's like just waffly. Just waffly. It's... it's you, want, you know what it is? It's... It's overly complicated. 
It's, uh, it, it, it's Goodbye, not quite listener. gibberish. I'm just going to let him talk. It, they, there's a certain Bye. amount of, uh, an overabundance just walk away of now. consonants It's going to go for another minute, vowels. but Dan's just going to keep talking. Uh, it's okay. There's a, Remember, there, we love you. There's a certain monologue, but a, a more a duologue of, of, of information being uh, created. and with with experts like yourself and yep. we don't uh, well well again. You, <laughs> you have a lot of experience compared to us compared you're to the expert <laughs> That you don't like start talking about all the drug use that you do, yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, and yeah. then go, oh, are we recording yet? Yeah, we. <laughs> I've never been a professional cyclist. It's all right. Ah, right. <laughs> Ooh. Okay, that just ghosts. Um, yeah, that's an excuse in a science podcast. <laughs> um, ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> Two half wits. Smart enough to know better. Two half wits make a hole. <laughs> no. I want it to be of a quality where someone will actually listen to it once and then one day go, maybe I'll listen to that a second time. And sure. No, and uh, we could re record it, but I'm trying Lofty to. Lofty goals, I know. <laughs> Hang on, like, oh, sorry, which, which sort of horns are these? Sorry, just you are swearing a lot. I'm just I'm not too sure if you're catching yourself. Swearing a lot. No, no, it's intentional. Oh, okay, that's fine, because I just was sure of this whole spider cast thing. Okay, that's, that's making sure. No, 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 no the, the Ibex. I, I know you're swearing before, but I was just like... I, I'm energizing the dialogue uh, just, okay, with some delicately crafted it, blue language. <laughs> that's fine. I just wasn't too sure. That's okay. I know. I'm a, I know where I... No, I, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but uh, that's always the Sorry, case. The, it's, it's,